it's not about us this morning, God. And I just thank you, God, for that wonderful sense of your presence as we've worshipped you, as we've come before you. God, I just pray that you open our hearts now to hear what you have to say to us. Amen. I'd like to, um, we're in the second week of our Inspired series over the summer, which we've asked lots of different people from the church to come and share what God's given to them, something that's inspired them, or maybe a character in the Bible that's inspired them. And I'd like to introduce Lee to you this morning, Lee Burrows. You won't be saying that in a minute, trust me. Uh, Lee's familiar to probably most of you as he's one of our worship leaders and he's also an elder. So he's used to kind of having the stress doing the worship and then sitting and relaxing during the talk. But not this morning. (laughs) Um, Let's uh, just like to pray for Lee. Um, Lee's wife Jane's actually in Zambia at the moment. The team left just on Friday, not yesterday. But they did arrive safely yesterday. Um, He has two small daughters, Jess and Ellie. That's a little bit about Lee anyway. So let's just pray for Lee and then he's going to speak to us. God, we just thank you for Lee. We just thank you for him being part of this church for quite a long time, for the gifts that you've given to him, that he is so willing to give back to you in this church. God, I just pray for him as he does this this morning for the first time and steps really outside of what he's normally used to doing and he's comfortable doing, but into something new. And God, I know that you've given him something to say and I just pray that you'll help him to just deliver that in a really good way God that he will feel just really comfortable and just surrounded by you and your love here this morning I just pray you'll bless him and that you'll help us to just really understand and hear from your spirit what you've got to say to us today amen amen good morning how you doing you're okay I've got to say it's a long walk from there to here and for some reason you look a little scarier on this side of the stage than you do over there but we'll cope with that just before I kick off this morning I'm going to give two apologies two disclaimers The first thing is this, I know that I speak very, very quickly. Borderline unintelligible. Now, I will do my best to slow down. Worst case, get the podcast, slow it down to half speed, and you should be good to go. Um, And the second thing is, I have this lethal combination of being one of these people that waves their arms about a lot, and so it's a bit distracting, but I'm also incredibly clumsy, hence no handheld mic. Because the reality this morning is that something's going to go wrong if I had a mic and one of you would be injured. So I'm going to avoid that. And if you think I'm joking about how clumsy I am, and this is absolutely true, so you you should be, you know, um, quite pleased I haven't got a microphone. About three weeks ago, I was leading worship. And during the service, I was able to black my own eye by changing my guitar. I kid you not, that is how clumsy I am. So um, that has nothing to do with what I'm going to talk about this morning. But um, I need your prayer. My life is a dangerous life, as you can tell. Um, but we'll, we'll, we'll jump straight in. Okay. Inspiration. I was asked a few weeks ago just to share about a person, a character in the Bible that really inspired me. And I was immediately drawn to, to, to this character. It's the character of Stephen. He's, he only appears very briefly in the New Testament. And we encounter him first in the book of Acts. And if you're kind of new to faith and new to the whole, the whole Bible thing... The book of Acts is found in the New Testament, and it's an historical document. It basically explains the, the, uh, the history of the early church, and when Jesus goes back to heaven, which is called the Ascension, and then for the next 25 or 30 years of what happens as that fledgling church develops and forms, and what God does through that church. 
and there's lots of ups and there's lots of downs. And during that book, we meet characters like Paul, and it's in this story, it's in this context that we meet Stephen. And Stephen appears very early on in the story. He appears in chapter 6 and chapter 7, we'll, we'll, we'll read one of those chapters in a moment. And the more famous chapter about Stephen is, about, is chapter 7. And that story actually describes Stephen's martyrdom. Stephen was the first recorded Christian that was killed for his faith, for his beliefs. And if you read that chapter, and I would really encourage you to do so, if you read that chapter, you will, you will find that um, Stephen was falsely accused. He was pulled before the religious leaders of the time, who the Sanhedrin. And um, when he's there, standing trial and making a case for himself, he does this incredible speech. And he basically takes the Sanhedrin, his accusers, through. He says, do you know what? Your God, your God of Israel, going right back to the early days, right back to, uh, to Abraham, and through Joseph, and through Moses, and through the prophets, he plays his story out to him and says, you know what? All the way through that period, your God has been leading up to this moment when Jesus appears amongst you. When the word is made flesh, and he explains that to the religious leaders of the time, and they don't get it. And he says to them, do you know what? You've rejected him. You've rejected God's promise. And they react badly, as you would imagine. They drag him outside the city gates, and there he is stoned to death. And then we heard a few weeks ago from, uh, from Leon, when he took part of our Daniel series, what happens then is that the church experiences a major, the first major persecution, and as a result of this persecution, the church is scattered. It moves from beyond where it is in, in, in Jerusalem, that locality, and it starts to break out, and it moves out into Judea and Samaria, and then, as we know, into the rest of the ancient world. And we'll come back to that story because that's important. But what I want to do is concentrate on a story that's a chapter before in chapter 6 that may not be that familiar, may not be that well-known, it's a story about a dispute in a church, an argument in the church. Um, it might not appear as dramatic as all of that or even relevant, but the, the more I've kind of dug into this and kind of and, and studied a little bit, I think just in this one chapter, in the response of the church and the response specifically of people like Stephen, that there are some real lessons for us to, to, to learn this morning, not just um, for ourselves individually, not just for the church corporately, but I would argue for Zion Christian Centre, moving into a new season, moving into the third place, there is some stuff in here that is critical for us as we start to, and we continue to mature as a church. Okay, you with me so far? Not too fast? That's going to get worse. Good. Right then, if you can turn with me to chapter 6, if you've got your Bibles, of Acts, and um, I'll just read this through and then we'll jump in. So we'll start at verse, verse 1. In those days when the numbers of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven from among you who are known, known to be full of the spirit and wisdom and we will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention, as the apostles, will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. And this proposal pleased the whole group. And they chose Stephen, a man of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. And they presented these men to the apostles who prayed, laid their hands on them. 
And so the word of God spread. And the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. And just continue down a little bit. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. So we have a dispute. We have an argument in a church. Unusual, that. <laughs> way, way back in, in, in this historical document of the early church, there is a dispute going on. And the dispute basically is there is some kind of distribution of food going on. There are vulnerable people in the church. There's a particular group of widows in the church that aren't getting this food, this aid out to them. And you get the impression that up until this point, things have been cool, things have been good, it has been working. And that food has been getting there. So the church has been operating, the way the church was functioning, its infrastructure, its processes, its administration, the way that it did church in that context then was working. And everybody's needs were being met. And then for some reason, it starts to falter, it starts to shake a little bit. And the ministries that were going on before and the needs that were being met before started to not be met. And the clue as to why this happened is found in the first verse that you read in this chapter. It says that the church was growing, that numbers were being added to the church. If you read previous chapters in Acts, it says that God was adding numbers to the church on a daily basis. And we, and we hear stories of thousands. So this church was burgeoning. It was growing incredibly quickly. And the impact of it growing quickly was that all the stuff that they did day one started to fail day two, three, and four, and five because of what God was doing. And God was doing a good thing. And this is just for us now, I'm just going to pause slightly at this point here. This is a really important lesson. It really jumped out at me when I read this. Because you know what? When God moves, it's always good. When God breathes growth into a church, it's good. When God breathes spirit and a new vision into the church, it's a good thing. God has a heart for this, for Hales Owen, this, this little suburban town. God has a, an overwhelming love for this town and this place. And God will do anything by hook or by crook to get involved with this town. And we as a church have stepped into that walk with God. But the reality is this, that when God moves, sometimes we're running behind his coattails a little bit. Our God goes, the Bible says it's like a wind, he goes where he will. And we have to kind of keep up with that. And the the chances of, or the risk sometimes when that happens is that we have to change the way that we do things. Our structure, our, the way that we do church is impacted by that. And the reality could be that today we have a, an activity over here, a ministry over here, a service over here. And because God's doing something over here, we have to re-divert resources and skills and people and giftings over here. But the challenge then is that there was a group of people here that were being served. Their needs were being met. And we have to just recognize this is what happens in church. And, and, and the trick is to be diligent, is to be aware that when God's moving, we look out for one another. We make sure that each one of us is not missing out, that we're not falling through the gaps, that nobody in our community is isolated. And the thing that draws all this together, the way that we can make this work, is just by extending grace and mercy to us. That's what we're called to do. God has called us into community, a hodgepodge of people and cultures and backgrounds. And then he sets this challenge amongst us because God's going to move and we're going to follow. And while we're doing that and while we find our feet and we do this, that and the other, 
we have to extend grace to one another. And I tell you what, when the church is working well and the world looks at a church that can deal with friction and tension and pain and pressure and does it well and does it with great grace, that's an incredible message that we send out to this community about our God. But this is where this church is now. This is this, the, the church that we're reading about in Acts is in this place. And you can see because now some frictions are starting to form. And it's between two groups of Jews. It's between the Hebraic Jews or the Hebrew-speaking Jews. And, and these were kind of the more, the more local lads and lasses. They were more inclined towards the, the traditional way of doing Judaism, the, the traditional way of doing the Jewish life. But then you had the, the, the Greek-speaking Jews or the Grecian, the Grecian Jews. And some of your translations may say it's the Hellenistic Jews. But whichever terminology you use, these were not your typical living in the locality type of Jews. These guys came from much further afield. The technical word is diaspora to describe the extended Jewish community that lived not just in Jerusalem and the surrounding area, but also there were communities out all over the Roman Empire. And these were more inclined to the Greek way of doing life. They were more familiar with Greek literature and the Greek view on life. So they were quite different. So you had two groups of Jews, both with Jewish, Jewish heritage, both born again and Christians, but with very, very different views of life. And that's important. That's really important key. And we, I will come back to that towards the end of our time together. But out of this then, the, the Greek-speaking Jews make a complaint and they say, do you know what? Our widows aren't getting the food that they need anymore. And there's even a sense that they're being discriminated against because the Hebrew-speaking Jews are getting the food. So you can see there's a real tension starting to form in this place. And how the disciples respond to this, how the apostles respond to this, what they do next could be critical to the future of the church at that time. And what they did was they responded with incredible wisdom. And there were two things that they did. The first thing they did is they recognized that they couldn't do everything themselves. It's important for us as a church to remember that. Not one person, not one group of people, not one select band of people can do everything that needs to be done in the community of God. And these guys recognized that. They recognized that incredibly quickly. And what they said was, do you know what? It is not for us to wait on tables. Now, with our Western mindset, that looks quite derogatory. That's we're apostles and we float three foot above the ground and poor people will pass us by. It's, it's not that at all. I don't know where that came from. That's not in the script. Um, but there's this, there's, you just get this sense. What they were actually saying there was, was this. Look, it's not for us to do that because we have got something else that is equally important. Not more important, but as important as this particular activity. We have, as apostles now, a calling to pray over this church and into this church and to teach and to lead this church. And this was a, the, 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 the kind of challenge with this, if, if you like, was how do they kind of make that work? Because the, the problem was this. If the apostles didn't do that, you think about this church, it's just formed. The leader of this church has been crucified. So their leader, if you like, the immediate leader there, he's not there now. All they have is the Spirit of God and what God is moving through there. It's kind of, he's invisible to them in that sense. But they know he's there, there's a Spirit and, and, and God is leading them. But the reality is you've got this group of people that have come together from different cultures, different backgrounds. They've got immense external pressure. They've got the Roman Empire breathing down the neck. 
they have the Sanhedrin, the religious authorities. There's massive amounts of external pressure on like, this church. And there is internal pressure, the risk of heresy, false teaching, all kinds of you know, um, dodgy views on, on, on uh, what God has done. And if they weren't praying into that, if they weren't praying into the seeds that God had planted through his Holy Spirit, if they weren't teaching into that, the speed of maturity and growth of this church could be stunted in some way. It could be restricted. And they recognized that. And so what they did, which is the second really wise thing, was they went out to the church. They went out to the community and they said, basically, we cannot do everything there is a calling on our lives that is important to the future of this church, but there is also this need over here. These people amongst you, these vulnerable people are suffering. So we need you, church, to engage in this. We need you to pick seven people from amongst you because we want those seven guys to take over this incredibly important mission and ministry of meeting the needs of this group of widows that we're not being fed. And they said, make sure that you pick people that are full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And that's critical. So they're saying that when you pick these people, when you get them out to get involved with this ministry, ensure that they're hooked into God, that they are led by the Spirit, that their, their, their spiritual connection is a strong one, it's a good one, that the Holy Spirit is dwelling in them, which is all good. But they also said, make sure they're full of wisdom, practical the type of people that can make things happen. And sometimes the risk that we can have all these great visions that God has, has planted in us and has, has empowered us to do, but we also need to have the wisdom and the practical skills and gifts to make things happen. And so this is what they say here. When you call these guys out, make sure full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. And this is where, at last, you may be saying, we meet Stephen. He's mentioned as the first of the seven people that the church nominates and brings forwards. And I just when I started to look at this, the fact that his name was mentioned first, he was top of that list. He was clearly well respected by his community. People loved him. And, and you know, when, when, when the need came forward to do something like this, oh, Stephen's your man. Let's get Stephen in the mix. He was probably from a, the part of the Hellenistic group. He was probably a, a, a Greek Jew. His name's a, a Greek name, sounding name. It says that he, he was full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Whenever I hear that, when someone's full of faith and the Holy Spirit, I don't know what that conjures up to you, but to me it's a sense of enthusiasm, of, of passion. There's a depth to his spirit, spirituality. Later on, and we read it earlier on, it says in Acts that he was a man full of grace and power who did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. He was a man of the people in that sense. He was among the community and in the community. And God used him, um, as it says here, with this miraculous signs and, and he demonstrated true, true grace and power. We know he was courageous to the point of death. You heard right at the beginning that he eventually was martyred. He was murdered for his faith. He was incredibly eloquent. Again, I would encourage you to read chapter 7. Because what Stephen says to the Sanhedrin and how he says it and how he presents this case is full of passion, it's full of drive, it's full of wisdom, it's full of insight, it's also full of courage. Because before the guys are accusing him, he says, do you know what, you have rejected him, what are you going to do about it? That's basically what he says. So he's incredibly eloquent and brave in that sense. And then the thing that really struck me was that Paul... 
Paul mentions Stephen a little later in, in Paul's lifetime. Let me paint you a picture here of this. Paul, we know from the scripture, was a witness to Stephen's murder, to his execution, to his stoning. Paul was overseeing it. Paul had the, the cloaks of his peers around him laid at his feet as a sign of respect. Paul would have witnessed this man's dying act. This man's dying act was to say, Father, forgive the guys that are killing me. Don't let it be held against them. A com- absolute, complete mirror of what Jesus said on the cross. Those were the last words that Stephen spoke. Maybe the first words that Paul heard of what a spirit-filled Christian can be like. And so Paul writes a little later on, he's talking about it, and he says, you know what, that's Stephen. He was a witness for Christ. Stephen impacted Paul. And, and I don't know about you, that whenever I look at someone like this, I, I, whenever I see somebody like Stephen, or someone that really inspires me, or conversely, if I meet somebody and go, what planet are you on? Why do you think like that? My, 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 my gut reaction is to go, what makes you tick? You know, why are you so great, or why are you so wee? Um, but there's that sense of, I want to understand people. I want to know what was it in their DNA, what was in their wiring, what was going on in their heads and their hearts that kind of that molded them into this shape. And this is what I was looking at when I started to, to read more into Stephen. And this is, these are just my thoughts, uh, and this is just two things that I feel, I, I think, um, helps define Stephen, to me at least. Firstly, I think that Stephen fully understood the great commandment. He got it. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, and, same breath, and love your neighbor as yourself. He got it. He embraced it. It defined him. It it was what drove him on. He died because he loved the Lord, his God, with all his heart, his soul, and his mind. And he stepped into these situations where there was a need in the church, a social need, someone that was hungry, because he understood the context of, and love your neighbor. Secondly, and as importantly, I think what he got was, you know what? To be a Christian, this is what we're all about this morning, to be a Christian is to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. We are on a journey. God's got a bigger plan. God's plan is to redeem this planet, to turn the world the right way back up and to bring justice where there is injustice and all that kind of good stuff. But as part of that plan is our transformation into his likeness. We are made in the image of God and we are to be called back into that image. And he got that. He recognized. And what he recognized was, well, if that's the case, as I have been transformed into the likeness of God, what's the cornerstone? What's one of the cornerstones, one of the core attributes of our God? It's a heart service. I I found this really difficult to comprehend. Our creator God, we talk about omnipotence and and all those other omni words. Um, Whenever we talk about God, he's this awesome being. He's Core, God is love. And out of his love is a God that serves. Jesus came to serve, not to be served. Stephen would have heard the stories of how how Jesus sat down with his disciples and washed their feet, even the feet of Judas. His mercy and his his offerings of service and serving, there were no boundaries to that. He knew that Jesus was on the side of the oppressed. Our God 
is on the side of the oppressed, of those that experience injustice. He would have heard from the apostles how Jesus said, Do you know what? If someone's thirsty, give them a drink. If they're hungry, give them some food. If they're naked, unclothed, give them clothes. If they're in prison, offer them friendship, conversation, consolation. And all of this, to be like God, to be transformed into the likeness of God, would have been coursing through Stephen's spiritual veins. So then my next question is, okay, so that's how someone's wired. So, but why is it, why is it serving, the act of serving, when a community serves, when an individual serves, why is it so attractive? Because it is, isn't it? Whenever you look at TV, whenever Mother Teresa's name gets mentioned, pretty much in any environment, there tends to be, oh, wow, yeah, she was, a, she was an amazing woman. Whenever we see things like Live Aid, you know, the, big, the, big, the big events we do, like the kind of comic relief and all the rest of it, and, and we kind of see people stepping in, in, in a way they wouldn't normally do that, Christian or no, you tend to go, wow, that's pretty good. That's a good thing. Even us, we, you know, as a church, and we, we spoke about it with the fantastic announcements earlier on, which I'm, I'm looking forward to the fall, um, mentioned about the community day that we have as a church. When we as a church and with, with other churches in the area, we go out into people's homes and gardens and we dig and we paint and we do all kinds of damage in God's name. But, uh, but, that, but that, draws, that draws a crowd, doesn't it? It's in the Hales Zoe News. You know, it's, it's always there. It's something that, that's visual, that's attractive to people. And yet, if you think about it, in our modern, western, consumeristic, me, me, me culture, where it's all about acquiring new stuff and position, why is it? Attractive. Our whole culture, if you think about it, we are taught from the ground up, our whole culture and the way that we are is defined by evolution. Survival of the fittest. If you went strong enough, you don't deserve to carry on. Why should we help you? That's what nature looks like. And yet to us, we find serving incredibly attractive. And it's counterintuitive, it's different to what our culture would dictate. And I think the reason for this is that we are made in the image of God. There is something inside us. You may be buried a long, long way down. And if you don't know God, you, know, you, you, know, you may not even be consciously aware of it. But there's something inside us that knows right from wrong, good from evil, selfishness from selflessness. It's there. It's in our gut. And when we see selfless service, when we see somebody step out of their own comfort and relinquish their needs in aid of somebody else in an act of service and an act of grace it rekindles something inside us it's like, the, it's like a whisper it's like an echo of do you know what there's something inside me that's rekindled and recovered when we, when we do this a, a personal example of this um, I became a Christian when I was 16 17 I can't remember how long it is I'm in denial I'm at that stage now where I'm in denial with days and weeks and things uh, and I became a Christian anybody remember the reclamation road show yeah a few people for, for the younger ones amongst you it's nothing to do with DIY or anything you see on the, the living channel it was an event that took part in, place in Dudley every month or so and, and I became a, a Christian at that event and my first church, my Christian walk, started in the Salvation Army in Cradley Heath. That was my first experience of church. Scary, eh? And um, I came from a completely unchurched background. 
um, a key influencer and the most influential person in my early life is my stepfather. He was pretty much around for pretty much most of my, my formative years. And um, he had some very, very communistic views. I mean, he was left of Lenin. I mean, he was, <laughs> honestly, I, I can't put it into words how communist he was. Um, and by, de by de default, he, he kind of made Richard Dawkins look like an evangel evangelical Christian. He was so atheistic in his views. A and yet, when I became a Christian, you can imagine walking into this. I actually shared a lot of those views with my father. He was so influential. We spoke a lot. Uh, I'm a talker and a waver, as you can tell. Um, and we spoke a lot about stuff like this. And so when I became a Christian, that was quite difficult for him to understand. Excuse me. It was unpalatable to him. And yet, and yet, because I was part of the Salvation Army, in his head, he had this thing. Do you know what the Salvation Army, it does good stuff. It serves. It goes out into an unjust world and brings justice. That's a good thing. He didn't equate the Salvation Army to being a church, and that's what we're called to be as Christians, but he got it. And it, became, it was, at the very least in our conversations about faith, it was the common ground that we have. Service, even to the hardest critic, is incredibly attractive, and it exposes something in the spirit that says, serving's good. It reflects God out to the world. Could I um, change tack slightly? It's a bit of a challenge, actually, before we do, before I carry on. When we tend to sometimes think, when we talk about serving, that the only time we can really do that, the only time we can step among, beyond ourselves is if we're really going for it for God. You tend to think that with people. Well, they're really going for it for God, and they're doing all of this type of good stuff. And the reality is sometimes that we as individuals, and myself more than included in this, Whenever there are moments when I'm thinking, you know, God, where are you? Or my relationship isn't as good or as it could be. My natural reaction in those times is to step back and say, do you know what? It's now my time of need. Serve me. Our natural reaction is to do that whenever we start to feel distant from God. But I tell you what, I am convinced we're never more like God than when we serve. We're called to be transformed into the likeness of God. Well, let's start here. Now, there is, hear me on this, there is a time to step back and to allow people to minister to you and to serve to you, serve you. Absolutely right. But there is also equally the time where you say, do you know what? I'm not quite sure what page I'm on at the moment in my walk with God. But I'm not going to sit back. I'm going to step forward. I'm going to relinquish my need to meet the need of somebody else. There's some power in that. And I'll tell you what, I think in many cases, if you're looking for healing and a renewed relationship with God, you'll find it at the coal face of healing, not in the sofa of being served. It's just a comment, really, and something that really struck out when I was, I was kind of thinking about this. So, God, so serving reflects God. Serving also helps us understand God's heart a little. When we serve when we step into what our God does, does and what Jesus taught us to do, we start to understand the real value of what a serving world looks like. A world that's turned upside down on its head in the way that we view the world today. Uh, about, and some of you have heard this story before, ten years ago or so, I had the privilege of going out to Chicago 
And we're going out to a church conference there at Willow Creek, which I know many people here are aware of and have been to that conference as well. And uh, we went out there and we had a kind of a loose end on a Sunday in downtown Chicago. You can't say that about Hales Owen, can you, by the way? You can't say, I was in downtown Hales Owen the other day. It doesn't, doesn't work. But I was in downtown Chicago, uh, as you do. And we were looking for a church to go with loose end and we, you know, we wanted to go and find a church. And we kind of stumbled around and found this, this kind of little church right in the, the middle of, of Chicago. And we, we, we went in and, and sat down and we pretty much very quickly became apparent to us that this church had a very specific calling. This church was all about 120% focused on meeting the needs of the destitute, the homeless, the hungry, the poor, the broken that were sat outside on the streets in Chicago. And we sat there, I remember sitting in, in the service, and it, it wasn't flashed or anything like that, with a complete mishmash of humanity just sat there. And then and afterwards, we got chatting to some of the guys who were around the place. And someone said, hey, you know, you're, you're obviously visitors. Fair, fair comment there. <laughs> we clapped like this. Um, we're obviously visitors. And so do you want to come on a tour of the place? And we said, fantastic, let, let's do that. And this guy, we thought he was a member of staff, then proceeded to, to walk us around this church. And we walked out of the kind of sanctuary area like this. I tell you what, we walked out of here, then we saw church. Because then we walked around rooms that were full of beds and mattresses. We walked around rooms where people could be fed and watered. We walked around rooms where people could bath and be clean. People could be spoken to and counseled and loved. And we kind of walked around this place and were just absolutely blown away by what God was doing there. And then the most incredible thing, we started chatting to this guy, and um, what, they, what they do in this, oh, we should do this in Zion, by the way, I've decided we should do, definitely do this in Zion. What they did is if you came to that church and you came off the streets and you became a Christian and you were part of that community, you would do your testimony to random people to kind of get you used to witnessing. So literally, I don't know, Jim Bob would walk past us. It's the only name I could think of. <laughs> Randy would walk past us, or Brad or whatever. And they would say, hey, these, these guys from the UK, they're visiting, tell us your testimony. And he would, these guys would just spill it out and give us all, explain everything about what God had done for their lives. And it was incredible to watch. I tell you what, just as a side thing, the power of testimony is so, so important. I don't do this enough. I talk about church a lot to people. Do I talk about Jesus enough? Do I talk about what God has done in my life and how God has turned my life upside down, and that I'm a new creation, and all the stuff and junk that went before has now gone. I don't do that enough. And I, I, I'm, I'm just thought about that then, you know, challenge to us, let's get out there and start talking about Jesus more, what Jesus has done for us. So anyway, backtracking. Um, so these guys get a testimony. And then eventually, the guy that was leading us around, who we thought was kind of a staff member, told us his story. And basically, not... More than months before, this same man, well presented, eloquent, full of the Holy Spirit, leading us around this incredible community, was sat on a street corner, destitute, lost his family, friends, relationships, job. Every piece of security that that man had had gone. And he was lost on a street corner. And then this community, in a very, very simple act, said, do you know what? We can do something for you here. We can clothe you. 
We can feed you. We can give you water. We can give you shelter. We can extend you love. And we can extend you compassion. Very, very simple, practical things. But I think we understand then the heart of God. Because the heart of God isn't just about changing a temporary, difficult, awkward, hard situation. Now the heart of God is to take that temporary, difficult, hard situation and through service and through us demonstrating grace and showing God to turn that into an eternal destiny and journey for this guy. He had gone from being destitute and broken to you couldn't be more full of life. And the entry point to that, the catalyst that started that, the opportunity, the excuse for us to share the good news of the gospel was by offering a hand and serving. We understand the heart of God when we see that. There's um, a phenomenal, phenomenal quote that I heard from um, Mother Teresa. Again, mentioned her before, maybe you know Mother Teresa. Uh, worked with, with, um, in one of the worst slums on the planet in Calcutta. Would have seen the most horrendous things on a daily basis. Stuff that I guarantee would make me question the existence. of Why God? Why, why is this injustice there? But she saw beyond the need. And she saw something different. And she says this of her experience in, in those slums. She says, I am a little pencil in the hand of a writing God and I'm, who is sending a love letter to the world. Her view wasn't about the pain and the suffering and the need in that community. Her viewpoint was, do you know what? There's an answer to this. Ultimately, God has the answer to this, but he's going to use a little pencil like me. I am a little pencil in the hand of a writing God that is writing a love letter to the world. And this morning, I'm going to challenge you a little bit on this. You know, I know so many, and I hear so many people, uh, sorry, stories in this church of people, and I know there are people here that serve quietly. Um, I chatted to a friend the other day about this, and he said it's the church of the unknown. And I love that expression. This is the church. What you see up here, peripheral stuff. It serves us, which is the right thing to do. We are to be taught. We are to be prayed with, as the apostles did. But where the rubber hits the road is what this does. What this community does out there in the world. And I know there are people here that cook food selflessly for their neighbours. They give respite to people that have um, difficult home situations. There are people here with incredible pastoral gifts will send an email, a letter, a phone call that are available at ridiculous times of night for other people. I know people here are incredibly gifted practically and they will do practically anything for anybody at any time. That is the power of the church of the unknown. You, if you do that, are a pencil in the hand of a writing God that is writing a love letter to the world. So my challenge this morning really is this. Are you on that love letter? Are you a full stop, an apostrophe, a full paragraph, a sentence, a question mark? But are you, is your life part of this love letter that God is writing? We as a church, I can, we know that 
the early paragraphs of her love letter has started to be written through the life of this church. But I honestly and firmly believe that we're kind of still in the introductory phase. We're still very, very early on in this love letter. I have the sense of God saying, you know what? Let me introduce you to what a loving God looks like. And here's the opening paragraph. Now let's get to the body and the conclusion of this letter. That to me is where we are with the third place. We are right at the beginning of something new, a new paragraph in this love letter that God is writing. In a moment, what I want to do is just show you a, a, a quick DVD. Flip's only a couple of minutes long. And um, it was the DVD that was put together, I think, last year sometimes. We had a civic lunch in the church uh, to launch the third place, and we had various influential people and dignitaries and civic leaders uh, um, attending this lunch. And we showed this DVD. And this DVD basically just talks about and, and, and shared with, with this group of people what it means to serve, to move alongside people. And at the end of it, it gives a roll call of all the people up until that point a year ago that were serving in this church. And there'll be names in there that are still here and are still serving day in and day out. There'll be names in there, people that moved on to other churches or other ministries. There'll be names in there now of people that are with God. But this roll call is a roll call of believers that form the early part and the first part of this new love letter that God is writing to the community. And my question is, if you don't see your name in that list, then maybe it's time to think about getting your name in that list. Because the power of service, the power of selfless service and saying, do you know what? Relinquish my needs, my comforts, meet the needs of somebody else, can turn the world upside down. And just before we look at this, this, um, this DVD, one last thought, and I said I would go back to this. If you go right back to the beginning, and we spoke about the early church, and the early church, um, when the persecution hit after the death of Stephen, it went out rapidly, as it said, it went into Judea and Samaria, and then we ultimately know it went into the rest of the ancient world, into the rest of the Roman Empire. Biblical scholars say that the group of people most likely to have broken out of the confines of Samaria and Judea and the, and the kind of traditional Jewish environment and into those dark, difficult, dangerous corners of the empire were those Jews that were from the diaspora, or in this case, the Greek-speaking Jews. So my question and my thought, just to leave you on really, is this. If the church had responded badly to that need that grew, that grew among a small group of believers in that church, a particular subset of that church, would they have been inclined to go out and risk life and limb for the gospel? Or is it part of the reason that those guys and women went out there and were willing to face persecution, torture, and death. The reason for that was simply because they recognized God, they were being transformed into his likeness, and critically, they saw what a true community of God looks like when it works well.
when God is moving through that community and they saw compassion and they saw grace and they saw selfless service and they went, do you know what? That is part of a message that it's worth facing lions for. It's just a thought I want to kind of leave you with. We'll watch the DVD and then we'll just close and we'll just worship together. Thanks. Something really great is when they're all like taking part, you know, even the quiet ones, and you see them all having a great time. It's brilliant. Uh, what I find fulfilling is seeing happy, smiling faces, seeing lasting friendships formed, and hearing them say that they don't want it to end and that they've had the most brilliant time. Uh, I'm part of the homeless uh, team, uh, and I think what I find most fulfilling is. When I'm out there, I don't think there's anything better I could be doing with my time. It just feels like it's the right thing, you know, it's the, the greatest thing I could have been, been doing with my time out there. And, and for me, I find that to be, it gives me a real deep sense of fulfilment. Really just, it's been a real honour to walk alongside these young people and talk with them, help them, advise them, just be with them and see them grow into the amazing young people that they can be, see them fulfil their potential and actually journey with them and see them become everything that they can be. Switch me on, Chris. Let's respond, shall we? Let's sing about our great God, about what the community of faith can really look like. The world's shaking. The world's shaking. We're 